Uh, I wanted to begin by thanking um, Ohio State and uh, Allen and the Mershon Center for having me here. I'm really looking forward to the discussion. And it was been a, it's been a while. We've been trying to find a date uh, for a long time, so I appreciate your patience with me very much. Now, what I'm going to do instead of reading the paper is talk through ultimately the causal process that gave rise to my even being interested in these issues, and then I'll lay out what I take to be either the most interesting or the most controversial core of what I'm trying to establish in this paper. So this uh, was ultimately founded, as, as Alan said, I'm a philosopher by training. I don't have that much contact with the real world. And I was posted, not posted, but I was affiliated with the Carr Center for Human Rights Policy at Harvard. And there I actually got to know the people who are more practitioners in the world of human rights um, and had a lot of discussions with some of the people who identify primarily as activists and whose primary bailiwick is in the actual promotion, often through an NGO, for, uh, NGO format of human rights at home and abroad. And what really got me interested was the way that these people considered their role within a more general process, not of government full stop, but of governance, especially global governance. And it seemed that philosophers, first off, didn't really look at this, but nor did these people look back at philosophers to provide any insights as to how this role might be conceived of. And I thought this was especially important given the response to the Iraq invasion, where the role of an NGO concerned with the promotion of human rights um, didn't get enough serious attention. A lot of NGOs went straight from their utter distaste for the methodology, the salesmanship, the decision to invade, and for that matter, the uh, the agents who were invading, especially personal distaste for Bush, uh, to the idea that the invasion itself was unjustified. Now, it struck me that there was more to be said on this topic, and this is not going to be a paper about Iraq. I don't even know, for, to be honest, the ultimate decision I would make on the legitimacy of the in in intervention, the, if you want to call it that. But I do think that there are some things that could be said that were motivated by this experience that might make the decision-making process more amenable to a finer-grained analysis of how we ought to speak and think about such interventions as the in invasion of Iraq. So uh, what I began with was by arguing that there are really two kinds of political agents. Well, there may in fact be more than two kinds, but there are at least two kinds that are worthy of our attention. What I call first-order agents are those that, in fact, are charged with the direct exercise and administration of government power. So political leaders, executive power, legislators, and so forth, understand their position as the determination of policy and then the execution of that policy. Their job is to wield coercive and military force. Uh, Second-order agents, however, are uh, another pattern of agents with a role to play in the process of governance. And I understand these as agencies whose primary responsibility is not directly in the wielding of power, but in the response to government power. Now, that includes a wide variety of things, churches, unions, affinity groups, and most centrally, NGOs, who take themselves as having responsibility to represent often people who are underrepresented in the process of governance, especially uh, people who face serious human rights abuses. And they take their role as being that of speaking back to power especially on behalf of those who otherwise would have no voice. Now, so much, I think, is, is reasonably uncontroversial. What I think is more interesting is the possibility that our ethical analysis, from the standpoint of philosophers, often just looks at the first-order agents and says, is this a just action for a government to engage in? Is this governmental action legitimate or just? And then assumes that that's the only interesting question worth asking. 
And a similar move is to actually say that the answer for the first-order agents determines the answer for the second-order agents, that if an action ought not to be taken by a government, it ought not to be defended by anyone else. And it strikes me that, in fact, more complicated principles might be at work here, that it might be possible that NGOs and organizations like them have some limited permissions to act on behalf of those they represent in such a way that what makes their defenses legitimate may in fact be different from what makes the intervention legitimate. Now all of that is a very long-winded way of saying that ultimately I think perhaps NGOs have some permissions to endorse, defend, participate in, and get involved with interventions even when we have reason to condemn the interventions themselves. So in other words, an unjust intervention, we might say, may in fact have some ability to justly produce its own support on the part of NGOs charged with the defense of human rights. In other words, simply, there are different principles affiliated with the NGOs than there are for the uh, first order deliberations of government officials. And the specific case I want to analyze is the NGO in the human rights community, uh, those NGOs who take themselves as having responsibility to defend the human rights and the dignity of individuals who are often overlooked. Um, some of these NGOs actually believe that the question they have to ask is ultimately the same question that governments have to ask, namely, is this intervention just? Is this intervention a legitimate form of government uh, policy? The, uh, the NGO uh, Human Rights Watch issued a, doc a document shortly after the beginning of the uh, Iraq invasion, which was simply titled, This is Not a Humanitarian Intervention. And for them, that was an important moral consideration. The fact that it did not meet the tests of humanitarian interventions meant that HRW would, in fact, use its considerable moral authority to condemn the actions having been taken. Now, that's one possible vision of how an NGO should understand its own role, to ultimately embody the same principles that we take should motivate first-order political agents. I, I think, actually, these roles could be considerably more uh, differentiated. And there are two areas in which I'm going to establish, or try to establish, that NGOs like this may have a permission to go beyond the limits of what first-order agents are allowed to do. Uh, the first one I want to talk about is intention. Now, it may be the case that intention, the right intention, a humanitarian motive, is a morally important aspect for the legitimacy of government policy in the first order. When you act rightly, when you act as a humanitarian, you perhaps act, have to act from a humanitarian motive. But I don't think that this limits us in the NGO community, if that's where we're speaking from, from actually defending interventions which don't have this character. It might be the case that the benefits are significant enough that they could have motivated a just intervention, even though the real motivation is something entirely different. That's why I use the idea of collateral benefit. That something can be beneficial and, in fact, serve to justify the use of force, even when the use of force itself is premised upon some other, perhaps completely ignoble motive. The second thing I want to talk about is the idea of proportionality. It's possible for us to say that there can be situations when an intervention will actually significantly increase the human rights of people in, a, in, a, in, in an oppressed community, but that the improvement isn't significant enough to form an independent rationale to justify the invasion itself. Under those circumstances, the question emerges, does an NGO have the right to advocate for, to defend, to lend its expertise and moral authority to an intervention taken for other reasons? And here, I think the answer may be yes as well. I'm going to draw an analogy between this case and the role-differentiated systems that inform many professions probably most notably the legal profession, where a defense attorney has a permission to act not directly in the name of justice, but in a partial and, frankly, uh, 
single-sided way in the interest of specifically one particular portion, portion, one particular sort of person who is found within the legal system. Similarly, I suggest NGOs may in fact have the ability not simply to ask, is this a justified intervention, but will this intervention, even if unjustified, be beneficial enough for human rights that we have a moral right to lend our weight to its successful pursuit. I'm going to go through these two in order. And the first thing to ask about is the idea of intention. A lot of people believe that humanitarian interventions have to be undertaken from a humanitarian motive. And the degree of purity that's required here is variable between different theorists. Um, There is, I think, the Presbyterian Synod or some related religious body so that any admixture of state interest or self-interest makes the entire intervention illegitimate. Now, this means, of course, that there has never been a humanitarian intervention, nor will there ever be one, because all state actions have multiple rationales behind them. It's just the nature of what states do. So more realistic theorists actually say that you can have plural motives, but the dominant or most salient, most direct one has to be humanitarian. And what I I think is that, in fact, this frankly isn't correct. But if it is correct, it can only be correct in such a way that it applies to the first-order deliberations of government agents and not to the second-order deliberations of NGOs. So I think there are a couple of possibilities here as to how we might make sense of this. Um, Some people said that it's an intrinsic part of something being a humanitarian intervention that it has the right motive. For you to act as a humanitarian... You have to act from the motive of humanitarian concern. And this, I think, might be true from the first order perspective if you want to actually put, as it were, uh, roadblocks in your way towards illegitimate forms of action. You have to purify the heart, ask yourself whether you are acting from the right motives, whether you are engaging in pretextual calculations designed to cloak your self-interest, whatever it may be. But this, I think, when applied from the third person towards an evaluation of another person's action, seems to me to misplace the moral accent. It's entirely possible for us to applaud another's action and say it was a defensible action while completely condemning the way in which it was done and the motives from which it was undertaken. So imagine that uh, you are on the seashore and you see someone drowning and, and you jump into the water to save them, but only because there's a television camera nearby and you think that you'll get on TV and get famous and people will love you. Now, what should be done by a third party who has the ability to aid or halt the action in question? Well, I think one thing is clear. We don't have a good reason to stop the rescue from happening. We have a good reason to condemn the motivation of the one who rescued. We have a good reason to think that they are lesser moral creatures than someone who actually acted out of concern for other people. But the way to test the morality of the action is often to speak to or speak with the standpoint of the one being rescued. Is it of primary concern to that person that their rescuer has a good heart? I think that's just unduly precious. It seems kind of weird for us to insist that you can only be saved by one who is only acting out of the concern for your welfare. Most of the times, I think, it seems rather that what we want is someone being saved, even if the one who saves them deserves no credit for having done so. Now, in fact, I don't think a lot of people really defend this line, the intrinsic importance of intention. The people I know who defend the relevance of intention, uh, and, and many, many people do, think that really the, the more important place for intention is in the pursuit of micro-decisions along the way. If your intention is humanitarian, then you're likely to take a slightly different perspective on the, the multitude of really small decisions that have to be made in the course of pursuing a military aim. You're likely to keep humanitarian considerations on the table. 
And I think this is entirely plausible. It's, it's empirically a gamble. And there are a couple of things that I want to point out as to why, in fact, this might not be dispositive, for at least for those people who view themselves as being a second-order political agent speaking back to the intervener. One of them is the idea of the framing of the policy objectives. If you're in a first-order position where you have ultimately free reign to figure out what possible policies are those that you have the political will and the capability to, to endorse, it's possible for you to compare the selfishly motivated intervention with an imagined altruistic example. That's the task you ought to do when engaging in the creation of action from the ground up. It seems, however, a wrong sort of calculation for those people whose task is involved in the evaluation of policy. Put very simply, it seems to allow the, uh, the merely beneficial to become destroyed by the optimal yet never possible. So the perfect here is becoming the enemy of the merely good by saying that we ought to have come up with a policy that was humanitarian in intent, even if that was never really on the table for political discussion. My worry is ultimately that NGOs that take this line are going to end up saying we ought to have done this in a different way and thereby condemn what we are doing right now when in fact what we're doing right now is infinitely better than the nearest available alternative, the alternative that was in fact a live discussion in the political calculation. But I think as important is the fact that this empirical calculation is what's most likely to produce substantive and long-lasting respect for human rights. It pushes in both ways. Uh, one of the real worries is that you have, if you have a purely humanitarian military war, then the public support for this program of military action tends to be very fragile. And wars tend to lead to death. That's just a fact of the matter. And where the primary methodology of justification is that of humanitarianism, we've seen that public will evaporates at the first sight of, let's say, a mutilated body. This is what, what happened in Mogadishu, when the will to maintain a presence went very quickly after the sight of mutilated American bodies. And, and in Iraq, while public will has gone up and down, and of course it's nowhere near, in any sense, being a unanimous, unanimously defended war, the multiple justifications, including a, a primary justification that has nothing to do with humanitarianism, seems to have enabled the political will to continue. Now, I'm not saying that's a good thing or a bad thing. What I am saying is that if you care about the substantive defense in the long run of human rights, then a purely humanitarian motive may not be sufficient to maintain those military actions that actually will lead to defenses of human rights. So if we're making the empirical guess that people who defend intention as relevant make, then I think we have reasons to be careful before we assume that their particular calculations are the only ones that might be made. Now, all of that just looks towards intentionality and says, ultimately, that perhaps the intention doesn't have to be as pure or as primarily humanitarian as people tend to think. The other thing I want to talk about in this paper is the idea that it's possible under some circumstances that a war can be very beneficial for human rights, yet not beneficial enough to call that thing a humanitarian intervention that could be justified under the traditional moral and quasi-legal categories of humanitarian intervention. Now, the question that I had was, under those circumstances, is it ever permissible for an NGO to use its pretty powerful moral authority to defend and to continue the efficient management of the war? Well, the first question you've got to ask is, why on earth would you want even to do that? What would motivate an NGO to defend wars that don't fit the category of humanitarian intervention? And I think there are, in fact, live possibilities here. The one possibility is to act so as to influence 
public life and opinion so that it acts as a normative point of pressure towards those military endeavors that are likely to have beneficial humanitarian effects and away from those that don't. Um, it'll be more able, easily possible for NGOs to lend specific areas of expertise, like Physicians for Human Rights, when they see themselves and are allow themselves to be portrayed as part allies of the military force in question. This is often a serious dilemma, especially for Physicians for Human Rights, when they have to ask, will our being part of the endeavor in this war uh, tar us with the same brush as those people who believe this war to be deeply unjust? The general point is that I think it is in fact possible for an NGO to have reason to want to participate in and lend its moral support to a war, even when the war's effects will be beneficial but not beneficial enough to justify it. So quite simply, can you justly defend an unjust war? if you put yourself into the position of a human rights NGO. And I think actually that the, the possibility here is that you can, if you understand the world of governance, the broader world of governance in which NGOs are situated, as having a character somewhat like an adversarial system of, of permission. Now, the clearest case of an adversarial system that we have is the domestic criminal legal justice system. And we allow defense attorneys, and for that matter prosecution, to engage in all kinds of really unsavory tactics, badgering, uh, you know, issuing slanted statements, being rhetorical, um, being quite unpleasant to witnesses, and in general not aiming directly at the true verdict but at a side, a partial partisan perspective within the process because we believe that that system will better conduce towards the maintenance of justice overall. Now. What we think here is that, in fact, someone playing the role of a defense attorney has, in virtue of that role, the ability to do certain things that would otherwise be impermissible. And now the question comes to my mind, is, is it possible for an NGO to view its place in the process of global governance through a very similar lens? And I think, at the very least, it's not implausible for us to view it this way. For just as defense attorneys try to represent a certain entity, a certain person within the justice system, NGOs do take themselves as having an obligation to represent, to literally uh, give a person and a voice to those people who are likely to be victims of human rights abuses. And as such, it seems entirely possible for them to say the system is more just with us serving as a partisan and uh, deeply non-neutral advocate for these people within the wider process of political negotiation. And as such, we reserve the right to emphasize the beneficial consequences, to use our considerable moral weight to defend those interventions which are likely to have significant collateral benefits, where, in fact, the benefit will be significant, but as I've said, perhaps not great enough to justify it where we empower ourselves. Now, there I think what's ultimately going on is that we can view the situation of an NGO as being that of a role-based permission. And I think, when the, in the times I've discussed this with NGO uh, people, sometimes they find this congenial. More often, there's a serious worry about how this would change the self-conception of the NGO. And that leads to, I think, some possible worries about the position I've said here. And I want to go through these worries, say what I think about them, and you know, highlight the ones that I think are the most damaging. The one worry is the idea of sharing in dirty hands. Now, a lot of NGOs want to view themselves as being, in a sense, above the fray. They do not want to engage in the world of politics, which is a world of negotiation, compromise, um, often questionable actions in the name of a greater good. That's what politics looks like. They want to view themselves as being more pure than that. 
and uh, Michael Ignatieff suggests that uh, NGOs ought do in fact view themselves not simply as defending moral principles but as embodying them that they stand for a certain notion of ethical purity and that this must inform both their actions and uh, the ways in which they pursue their ends. Now, I'm not sure that, in fact, this is a legitimate way for an NGO to act, that if you care about the human rights of individuals and if you think that's the reason you bring yourself together as a corporate body, then maintaining your own ethical purity seems to be a cost that sometimes is not legitimately yours to, yours to push onto other people. It may be the case that you simply don't have the right to keep your hands clean. And if so, this means that I think NGOs may have an obligation to engage in more forms of politics than they currently do and to sometimes get their hands, morally speaking, dirty by getting in bed with people they don't want to get in bed with. But the main point here is that clean hands only really have their license, I think, when you can demonstrate that their cleanliness causes benefits for the people you care about. And right now, I don't think that's a possibility for a lot of the NGOs that we have been speaking of. Another worry is the idea that this, in fact, debases the currency. Humanitarian intervention as a moral category is often represented as sort of a carving out from the general legal and moral rights of sovereignty uh, in the name of a moral principle that we think is worth defending. Now, having this situation where NGOs actually will end up lending their weight to interventions that are not, properly speaking, humanitarian, would seem to uh, weaken the currency by blurring the lines between humanitarian interventions and merely beneficial interventions. Now, I think there is a worry here, but also the worry I have is about the usefulness of this concept of humanitarian intervention. I'm honestly not sure how useful the concept is in comparison with alternatives which, if it's plausible, what I said here, would more effectively defend the human rights of individuals abroad. If it's possible for us to say, if it turns out that the guesses I'm making here are right and people can be more adequately defended by a less pure notion of humanitarianism, then the reason we want to keep this currency pure seems to me to have disappeared. We only care about the, the purity of the currency when the currency actually leads to concrete effects. And I think that's a serious problem here. The final thing I want to look at is the idea of debasing not the currency of humanitarian intervention, but the moral authority of the NGO itself. Now here, the worry expressed by a lot of people who work in NGOs is that if you actually keep yourself pure in the way that NGOs want to, you maintain the moral authority because anyone knows that what you say is coming from an unbiased, principled, and above all, impartial and neutral defense of human rights principles. Is it not possible that in fact what we're doing here will end up ultimately debasing the moral authority of entities like Human Rights Watch? I think this is the most serious worry with what I've said here. I think it is, in fact, a serious problem. The only defense I'd make is that uh, the only purpose in stocking up moral capital is to actually use that capital in the pursuit of concrete effects. And that means that, in fact, you have to make a very subtle form of calculation between keeping yourself an exemplar of moral purity and then recognizing that there are times when you have to actually use the, co the, the moral purity you've developed in the defense of people who have no other defender. In other words, you can't maintain your stock of moral capital and never expend it if there are times when the expense of that moral capital would in fact cause significant benefits for other people. Now throughout all of this, what I've tried to do is just to differentiate the possibility of uh, having distinct ethical principles for second order political agents 
I've tried to give you some reason to think that this works in the area of whether it, an intervention has to be intentionally humanitarian and whether it has to have the uh, sufficient degree of proportionality to be justified as a humanitarian intervention, whether those things have to be true before an NGO could step in and defend the, the, the war. And you know, I've, I've hoped to have given you some reason to think that that doesn't have to be the case, but I recognize this is a controversial position. I'm not sure that I've convinced myself, so I don't expect that I've convinced you necessarily either. So that's probably uh, as good a picture. And now we just have a question period. That? All right. So I'll just take my own questions. So. Well, in fact, I think the primary thing I'm saying is the first thing, that NG, uh, sorry, the second thing. Uh, yeah, the, I mean, I'm not the first person to say the first thing. Uh, David Kennedy in a, in a recent book says that, that the human rights community has fallen in love with the tools. It's viewed international law as being an end in itself, whereas in fact it's, it's, it's basically only comprehensible as valuable if it leads to concrete improvements in the lives of individuals. Um, so yeah, NGOs are too persnickety. But in, in fact, I don't think that has any direct bearing upon the correct contours of just war theory. Because it's possible for us to say that whatever the correct answer is as to the degree of proportionality that we require, NGOs right now have fallen in love with the tools rather than working effectively. And then the second thing, which is probably the more controversial and, and frankly less convincing to me as well, is the idea that there can be situations when, in fact, the war is not just in the sense that when you undertake to do this action, you are doing something that is not fully legitimate. It is not fully justified. However, even under those circumstances, it's one thing to say that the action is not morally correct. It's another thing to say how we ought to react to it. So there are times, like for individual risk, I don't have, if, you're, if you're doing something unjust, I don't have to stop you. And there can be role-based permissions to say when I have an obligation to get involved and how. So I am saying more of the second thing as well. Do you want to follow up? Well, here, here, here's the way in which it at least seems to me to be possible. Now, uh, there, there's, there's two places the word unsuccessful can come in there. There's an unsuccessful war. I, I, I mean, uh, no, I, I mean, um, if, 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 if
Yeah. 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 Well, I, I actually think that it's very rarely the case that the Congress and the President are strictly speaking neutral on whether to go to war or not, and a human rights NGO will actually tip the balance directly in favor of the invasion. That's not the way I understand how the NGOs cause results happen in the world. Instead, I think they happen by making a long-range form of pressure, keeping the agenda alive, making it easier to sell the war when you can actually demonstrate humanitarian effects, and in that way actually creating a long-term path that pushes whatever military interventions might actually be undertaken for deeply flawed means towards those that are actually deeply beneficial as well. Now, the case that you've raised does worry me. But Yeah, I, I, I think the argument I've given here could actually lead to that conclusion, and I'm not sure I don't want it to. I'm also not sure that it doesn't form a problem for me, but let's assume for the moment that it's not a problem, but in fact, modus ponens. Uh, what I'm imagining is that it's entirely possible for us to say that the traditional tests of proportionality aren't met. This will cost too much money for us. The benefits in terms of human rights don't mandate the risk of you know, death to some of our own and expenditure of money. But the benefits are serious. The benefits are, in fact, completely powerful in the sense that the people we are going to, let's say, you know, to use Lubin's term of sort of ordinary tyranny, we're going to save people from an ordinary form of tyranny such that, in fact, there's a real serious improvement in the quality of lives of human beings abroad. That if, in fact, you take yourself seriously as being the representative in the global governance system whose bailiwick is that interest, that I don't think your obligation is always to look directly from the standpoint of ought the war to be done full stop, but more to be an advocate for will this war help those who are otherwise voiceless. Now in some cases it may be the case that this will push us towards engaging in a substantively unjust action. But first off, I think that those cases are going to be vanishingly small, and second off, even in those cases it might be the, the truth that that is just a necessary side consequence of a system like an adversarial system that we believe will lead to greater justice overall. Yeah.
good. Uh, I, I, I sort of want to back up as well. Do you, do you mind uh, giving me your name so I can give you credit if I end up, you know? Charlie Wilson. Charlie Wilson, thanks. And John You notice this also gives me time to think. Um, it, it, in fact, there's, there's a sense in which I want to say yes and a sense in which I want to say no. The sense in which I want to say yes is that, in fact, there's a deep consequentialist air in what's going on here. It's a consequentialism that isn't consequentialism all the way down. It actually argues that there are some rights that we have moral obligations to defend, and those may be deontologically justified, but then under deeply non-ideal circumstances, what means are we allowed to engage in to defend those morally salient ends? Um, so in that sense, yes, there is definitely an end justifying the means here. However, I think that, in fact, the analogy with the defense attorney goes through, because in both cases, we, and I should, I'm a, I'm a law school dropout. I know enough to be dangerous to myself, but not enough to actually do it. Um, it seems that, in fact, we do have a limited adversarial permission on the defense attorney's part, but you're absolutely right that it's constrained. It's deeply constrained by the canons of legal ethics and the, the Bar Association rules and a series of whatever you know constrains you. So you can, for instance, give a deeply slanted uh, interpretation of the evidence, but you can't lie and make up the evidence. And I think that's sort of the compromise we've drawn between maintaining an adversarial position and also having people as officers of the court where they are viewed as defending the system's aims. Now, something akin to that I think is exactly what's going on in the NGO world. I don't think that NGOs have the right to lie. And the reason for that is twofold. First off, it's a moral reason, but second off, it also would be too far along the road that undermines the moral track I've outlined here. The first time you lie, you really do set fire to a lot of moral capital. And I think, despite the way in which I'm calculating things in a very instinctive way here, I think that ends up really harming the moral capital and probably debasing it forever. So similarly, I think the NGOs have a limited but very real permission to act in a role-based way. And in that sense, I don't think it's that far off from the defense attorney, as I understand the role. Yeah, that's, that, that's a real issue. But here's the way I think that an NGO can understand itself as having legitimacy. Why do we care that defense attorneys are officers of the court, that they have a certain sort of legitimacy that, for instance, I just can't, can't just call myself a defense attorney and become one. There are tests, there are requirements. You are an officer of the court. Well, the reason is that we think the system as a whole is better with those rules in place than without. And we think that the system as a whole is at least marginally justifiable as a good way of getting at the truth while biasing in favor of the defendant. Now, what's the equivalent in the international system? What does an NGO have to say to itself before it thinks that, in fact, its position is analogous? Well, given that the international system varies in terms of the strength of its rules, the extent to which they are specific and concrete rules, 
I imagine an NGO saying to themselves, for me to view my role as legitimate, I have to be able to say to myself, this system is more likely to produce justice with me in it than with me out of it. And under those circumstances, I think you've given yourself the moral warrant you require. Now, on a secondary level, I think, in fact, if it turns out that you're advocating for the rights of people who don't want those rights, then you have a good reason to question your own interpretation of justice. But quite frankly, I've never run across situations where that's true, that the rights that motivate most of these NGOs are rights that are very rarely experienced by those who have them as unwelcome. And uh, Swanee Hunt was a former colleague of mine who went to Iraq and interviewed Iraqi women in private with guarantees of anonymity, and she interviewed more than 100. And, and what she found was that every single one of them said a variant of the same thing. We're so glad you came. We hate you. We wish you would go home. But the rights that are nominally going to be protected now are much better than the set of rights that we had under the Ba'athist regime. So, in fact, while there is a deep worry about legitimacy, and again, I, I don't know which way I come down on such an utterly botched war, but I'm not sure that I worry too much about the ethical legitimacy of the sorts of human rights NGOs we feel right now. Now, there's multiple ways of being a bad NGO. There's the sort of the NGO that would say try to convince all nations that women shouldn't have the vote. And then there's just the inefficient, we really suck at being an NGO, NGO, which, which kind of bad. Oh, okay, so an NGO that in fact is operating upon a flawed moral system. Fascist NGO. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, in, in fact, you're right. That's, that's an assumption that I'm sort of, I don't know if I'm hiding it because I'm not, I've never been challenged before now, and I, I'm actually glad that you made it explicit. Uh, I'm assuming that in fact the rights that are defended by NGOs are understood as having moral quality, that they're morally correct. And in a sense, the reason I haven't raised this is that most of the rights these NGOs work for are rights that are, in a certain sense, unexceptional. And one of the real advances of the torture conventions, I think, is that countries that torture rarely call it torture anymore. They're at least embarrassed. That's a pretty damn minimal achievement, but it is an achievement. So there is a sort of super agreement of certain basic principles of rights, and then the goal of an NGO is often to make people live up to what they've said they're going to do anyway. That's often what Amnesty International and HRW get involved in. So the case of the fascist NGO I think is interesting, and the way I condemn them is as having a false moral theory, not as taking their role in NGO in the wrong way. Mm -hmm. Good, good. Now there, actually, I think you have to get into a substantive debate about what, uh, about what religious proselytization entails. How are we engaging in this form of proselytization? And uh, what do we owe one another in the global context? And at a certain point, you're right. Um, what appears to be a neutral defense of basic liberties, and, and often this is the case with Christian NGOs that seek to defend, let's say, Chinese Christians. Uh, at a certain point, you worry that that becomes into an attempt to uh, endorse not just freedom of religion, but a particular religious outlook. And under those circumstances, I think you have more difficult questions to ask about the moral quality of what's being engaged in. But by and large, the NGOs that are the most prominent spokespeakers in this international system are NGOs that don't have the character either as fascist or fundamentalist. Uh, would you mind giving me your name, too? I'm just going to go across here and then, yeah. Yeah, I just want to go back to the question earlier. 
Okay. Um, well, uh, this, is a, this is a quote from Kennedy that I agree in, and how I understand his point is that human rights, the, the human rights community has often been composed of lawyers who believe that the solution to problems of justice can be found in legal and institutional means. And as such, they want to formalize both international criminal procedure and a certain legalized vision of humanitarian intervention. Whereas, in fact, uh, people like Kennedy kind of say, and it's very much in the spirit of what I'm saying, which is also in the spirit of what Michael Ignatieff says, that um, if you want to defend human rights in a world that doesn't have law in the full-blooded sense internationally, it doesn't have a global government, it's composed of sovereign states who disagree wildly about a wide variety of things, you have to recognize that human rights will be defended only by force. And as such, it's a mistake to worry primarily about the precise phrasing of legal rules, which are routinely ignored. And for that matter, it may be a mistake to think that the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Rwanda is a really good response to what happened in Rwanda. We've fallen in love with the formalization of the tools. That's... Well, I mean, I'm, I'm actually a Canadian, so I, I grew up in a wholly owned subsidiary of the U.S. And yeah, I, I, I'm aware of the motivation that the belief is that sufficiently complex and noble legal tools can constrain power. But I don't think that international law is going to speak truth to power when it comes to global politics. So even if we formalize a certain notion of reciprocity that gets you know, a, a, a very powerful vision of when one society can intervene in another. Do you think that'll change the fact that humanitarian intervention will always be done from a powerful nation across the borders of a weak nation? Ignatieff says the first law of humanitarian intervention is, for God's sakes, don't do it to a nuclear power. And this, of course, provides some motivation to some countries to become nuclear powers, but more to the point, it's, I think, entirely unreasonable for us to imagine that international law by itself will actually constrain the realities of deeply unequal social powers. And this is why I actually, I think that in a sense, I want to be one of these people who believes that international law can do a lot of work. Because I think actually a world where the U.S. was constrained by international law would be a much better world than this one. But my worry is that we're essentially skipping a step in the process, saying here are the laws that would be great if they constrained the large and the small. 
and we've put them into place, we've negotiated about them, we've got them running, and then the large will use them when it's beneficial, but if the UN Security Council doesn't give authorization, how effectively does that stop the US Army from moving? The answer is not at all. Similarly with the Hague Invasion Clause for the International Criminal Tribunal. The ability of international legal tools to effectively stop the, the, the powerful nations from doing what they want to do is, I think, pretty much non-existent. And that's why people who are trained in domestic legal systems often want the international legal system to look more like the domestic legal system than it can, than it can actually do. I mean, that, this may be unduly cynical, but I'm also, I can't get away from it. I think this is right. Now, do you want to follow that up? Or? Yeah, sorry. It's not sort of a speech actor. This, this is actually, uh, uh, I, had a, I had a chance to speak with Romeo Dallaire about this, and he actually said that that was more common than the other way around. He, he was the only person so far who, besides yourself, has raised this issue. I have a great deal of trouble wrapping my head around it. Um, with one exception, I think it's possible for us to say that deep stupidity can be a moral problem. So if it's likely that a country will actually really mess up an intervention. We know from the beginning how badly run it's going to be. And this was uh, Romeo Dallaire's interpretation of the French Operation Turquoise, that while it was a just category of intervention, it was a responsive force to a situation of flat-out genocide, he said he really wanted the French to stay home because he knew that they were going to make things worse. And under those circumstances, I think, yeah, we can say that there is just opposition to a just intervention, but I don't know how interesting that is because I also don't know if we want to describe a deeply bad intervention as having the full-blooded character of justice, whether in fact it starts to infect its character as a just response to uh, genocide. That's a nice point, actually. And obviously, I think there's something in Iraq that has a certain character about this as well. Um, I think, in a sense, this is compatible with what I'm saying, because what I want to happen is the idea of the long-term defense of human rights being, frankly, the, the primary concern of those people who claim to have that as their unique bailiwick. And under those circumstances, I think you're, you're, you're right, that it, it's open to me to have an idea of just condemnation of a just war when it's likely that it will be followed by a lot of unjust wars. Now, again, your ability to have this happen depends upon your ability to make empirical calculations well. 
have a degree of confidence. And that degree of confidence, I think, is almost vanishingly difficult to come by. But when you think you have it, then yeah, these considerations certainly do seem to me to be well in line with what I'm saying here. So can I get your name too? Yeah, um, in, in point of fact, I don't want to be read as simply condemning the U.N., the U.S.'s record. I, I actually think the U.S. has, quite frankly, less of the sort of totalizing imperialist character that the left often associates with it. I think it's one of the more powerful agents for human rights. But that doesn't mean that this is, in a sense, the ideal situation. That I think actually a U.S. that understood itself as morally able to defend human rights and worried, in a sense, sometimes less about the appearance of imperialism, that might be an improvement. So to that extent, yeah, uh, the messianic defense of democracy isn't inherently a bad thing. But the, I, I don't think it's an ideal stopping place. It, it kind of depends on what level of abstraction we want to take this to, how much we can imagine reorganizing the world. So some political philosophers want to say, is it even just to have the world carved up into sovereign states? And they, many of them say no. And under those circumstances, you say that's a very interesting philosophical discussion, but we have to ask now, given what we have, where do we go to? And that's where, if we're asking that very specific question, I'm on your side. If we're asking a, a question between those two extremes about how would we want international legal rules to, to become, to evolve, what do we want them to do? I think actually it might be the case if we could develop sufficiently powerful international legal tools that actually defended human rights, then we might want to worry about the power of one nation to seriously control the democratic process in other nations. But that's not, the, that's not the worry that motivates me right now. In fact, I think that's deeply overstated. So I, I'm, I'm less worried about the US uh, being an imperialist power than my response to her might have made it seem. I, no, I mean, I... Well, in point of fact, that's a separate paper. Um, this is a paper about sort of how the NGOs ought to view their roles. 
And I have a, I have a, a paper elsewhere where I, I, I think a lot of the arguments against humanitarian intervention on the part of the Americans are, are they're bad arguments because they mistake, they, they say there's a fundamental notion of tolerance, tolerance of difference. We ought to tolerate other societies' ways of doing things. And I worry that that's often a cloak for tolerating people who have no interest in tolerating anyone. And that, to me, is not an implication of liberalism. What I do think is that intervention is often the reason it should be constrained, if not by law, then at least by practice, is that we're almost always going to get it deeply wrong. We tend to produce support for the local despot. He may be a bastard, but he's our bastard. We tend often to not understand the local culture and to really tick off those people who inhabit it. These are all sort of a series of local home truths as to how difficult it is to intervene well. They don't say that the U.S. doesn't have a right to do it. When it's able to do it, I think past a certain level of injustice, it ought to do it. But I think it's very rare that the U.S. is actually able to do it effectively. Grenada, great example where it was able to do it completely effectively. And you know the, the people who experienced Grenada were just sort of, thank you, that's wonderful. Other forms of invasion uh, were much more difficult because the cultural gap was stronger, the resentment was more powerful. I mean, this is all a separate argument, but instead of the reason we restrain intervention being norms of tolerance or international pluralism, it's basically because you can be so stupid when you go across borders carrying guns. That's why you should be careful before you do it. Not because you don't have a moral right to actually engage in the policy that is underlying the military force. So can I get your name too? Uh, I'm just going to go across here. Yeah. Now, explain that more to me, that the idea of right and wrong shifting. I, I, I think that proves that you always say that they have a problem with these What's your name? This, this strikes me as being a version of what many NGO practitioners do say in response to ideas like this, which is that we have an obligation to keep the moral categories pure. And I think what informs this paper is the idea that purity of conceptual clarity, conceptual clarity is a benefit only when it leads to people being tortured less. And when, in fact, humanitarian practitioners translate this argument into the idea that an absence of Puritan, if you want to use that word, or at least ethically clear standards that these NGOs embody as well as defend, that that will actually lead to less effective defenses of human rights, the argument to me becomes less plausible. If it could be established then absolutely, that's a reason not to change the self-conception of NGOs. Under those circumstances, yeah, you have absolutely no reason to do what I'm suggesting to do here. But it is an empirical guess, and I worry that we have run from the ethical 
a notion of a pure NGO to the idea that the pure ideals will be adequately defended by that NGO. And I don't think that's right. Michael? This, 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 this is possible. Um, I'm coming at this from Arthur Applebaum's book about the ethics of, of lawyering. And his question is, ultimately, if I decide to become a defense attorney, how do I justify to myself the ethically second-best tactics I may have to engage in? What can I say to understand that this is actually the right thing to do? And then he has this story as to how I have to actually make the claim to myself about the system as a whole. And I think something very similar to that is going to happen in the NGO world. Go ahead. I think that's interesting, the idea of taking the position of a designer of the legal system. And to a limited extent, that's how international agents understand themselves because they have the ability to create international law through actions in a way that isn't translated into the domestic system. International law is an elaborate way of saying treaty and custom in some cases. Um, but that just means, in a sense, that the international legal rules we're talking about are much less rich and much less, much less formalized. There is no rule of recognition that is easily translated to the domestic case. So imagine that when you set yourself up as an NGO, you first off, you say, what do I do? I do the things that NGOs do. I report, I issue documents, I lobby, I do monitoring, and all of these things have a multiplicity of effects. Through my actions, I may ultimately have some impact upon the legal rules of the international system. That's arguably true in a way that it wouldn't be true in the domestic case of a defense attorney. But you're also coming to understand yourself as occupying a role in a very loose but nonetheless pre-existing system. You're not the first person coming up with the idea of the NGO. You're taking yourself and in your charter, I mean, people don't have charters, NGOs do, and they have to say, you know, here's what we are for. This is what we're supposed to defend. And now you're existing in this system that you have a role in. And then the question you have to ask yourself seems very similar to the question that a def potential defense attorney has to ask herself. Is this system one in which I feel comfortable participating in this role? Is it ethically permissible for me to act in the ways that are incumbent upon me to act 
when I act as this thing. I'm not sure if I get the full power of your question yet. Um, well, well let, 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 sure. let, let me at least try this response. Um, there are two moments in the life of any practitioner of well, more or less anything. There's when you act in accordance with the rules of the game, and then where you step back and ask yourself if such action is ethically permissible. In both of those cases, I think you can make some story, both in the NGO and in the defense case, about what is done in those two cases. The defense attorney at a certain point may have a crisis of conscience and say, do I have the ability to do this? And you're shaking your head, so... No, no, you. You seem this. you disagree with the... Yeah, I disagree with the whole thing, because you're absolutely right. From the NGO standpoint, you're making up the rules initially. Yeah. proposition that the ends justify the means is mostly ambiguous. You've got to say, these ends justify any means at all, and of course that's not what I'm saying. And in part there are multiple ways of getting at the conclusion that NGOs shouldn't falsify evidence. And one of the ways would be to say, if you're setting up a system from the inside and you're trying to understand how your role serves the interests of certain people inside that system, you have to ask yourself whether the ability to fabricate evidence, the moral permission to do so, is one that translates into the moral end that you take to be valuable. And while it may do in an individual case, it will not do in the long run. That's why, in fact, you ha and I think that's really quite equivalent. The reason why we have these rules against the fabrication of evidence is because we think it will lead to bad results. Oh, sorry, I'll go back.
you said I think is actually replicated in what I'm saying, which is that the obligations incumbent upon an NGO that claims to care about X are to do what's best for X rather than to embody an ethically pure principle. And there I think you've taken it more strongly than I would want to take it because I think once you introduce long-range calculations that it might be the case that directly doing everything you can now in this case you know, hamstrings your ability to do anything else ever again. That would be the case of falsifying evidence and so forth. But then there's a separate moment in your question about the distinction between first and second order. And the core of that distinction, as I understand it, is really whether you have the ability to marshal coercive force. And NGOs don't. They view themselves as speaking back to power. Whether they speak back to power simply through public report cards, through discussion, or in the case of something like Physicians for Human Rights, actually uh, verifying the medical practices of another society, doing mass grave digs. These are things that are not consistent of government. They may be part of the process of governance, but they're not state actions. So how has that distinction, how does that fall apart based on what you've said? Okay, now, uh, uh, there I think actually it's possible for us to say that there are multiple kinds of NGOs. And some NGOs would just simply say, we're here to provide, let's say the Red Cross. You know, our job is not to take a position on anything. It's simply to provide aid where it's needed. And that's a perfectly good picture of an NGO. Uh, the NGOs that I'm talking about are implicitly, in a sense, adversarial rhetorical players in a debate, which the Red Cross tries desperately not to become. The problem, of course, is that sometimes these two roles get blurred in such a way that uh, an NGO whose primary, whose primary bailiwick is the provision of specific services can get enmeshed in dialogue. So uh, Physicians for Human Rights had a serious internal debate about whether or not it was going to participate in the trial of Saddam Hussein. And one of the things that they said, I, I, I still I think they did end up deciding to do it, but they were very worried that participating in this trial implied to the wider public that they supported the process that led to it. And their view was that it was very, it was almost impossible for them not to get enmeshed in the rhetorical debate over whether the war was a good idea or a bad idea. And they said that's a real cost for us because they didn't want to be associated with that war. In the end they decided that they, they would have to do it. I believe that's what they decided. But I think something like that infects a lot of NGOs where you have the decision not just to do what it is you do to provide the goods you provide, but also to act in accordance with a sort of role-differentiated normative discussion structure. Whether it's implicit or explicit, it's often explicit, there are times when you can't avoid making a statement with what you do. 
See, that's where, in fact, um, first-order players make statements too. Uh, the difference between first and second order is not whether they are is not anything other than their relationship to coercive power. You haven't said anything that that uh, the Red Cross is coercive, right? That's what that's what makes it second order. First order agents are those that actually have the powers of state coercion. Basically, if you've got a military, you're a first order power. The Red Cross doesn't have an army. Well, th this is actually um, this represents a serious shift in the relationship between, let's say, liberal politics and the military. For a long time, you know, left-wing politics viewed the military as being full stop their enemy, and then in the '90s and, and late '80s, there came this moment when, in fact, the people who were advocating for military action were often on the left. Now, I think that in a sense, that's a very wonderful situation to be in when, in fact, you have an army and a government that are able and willing to actually take humanitarianism as a primary motive. I think it's an incredibly rare historical phenomenon. And I don't know how able we are to predict it will ever come back. I, I, I think actually it's exceptional. And I, I would really be actually very happy to say that a lot of this paper is completely irrelevant if we get back to a world where governments take their humanitarian responsibilities seriously. And NGOs can go back to doing a lot of things differently. It's just that I believe, and it is an unstated assumption, that we're not there and we won't be there again. So what's, what's your name? Um, HRW at the time actually had an official policy of staying above the fray. And they said, we will engage in reporting from the war zones. We will use our powers to maintain a spotlight on human rights abuses, but we will neither condemn nor defend. Uh, that's why, in fact, HRW broke from their own practice when they condemned the Iraq war. They explicitly said, we usually don't take a position, but this one is bad. And that's part of the, frankly, the motivation for me to start thinking about these things more seriously was the discussion between Ignatieff and Ken Roth, who was the person in HRW who took that position. So HRW at the time did not oppose the intervention in Kosovo, but it did not also issue any rhetorical support in favor of it.
wondering whether or not to speak against or in favor of a certain possible rule is not the question, is the word just? Because it's definitely not that question. Is it the question, would the occurrence of the war be for the best, morally speaking, all things considered? Or is it instead the question, would the occurrence of the war be for the best for that corner of the whole universe for which my NGO is concerned? So if you think that human rights aren't the only thing that matter, and that there could be situations where, though a war would be on balance good from the point of view of human rights, it wouldn't be on balance good from the point of view of morality, which is a different question from the question of justice. Would you have the NGO be allowed to speak out in favor of wars that are not only unjust, but actually for the worst, morally speaking, so long as they favor the distinctive sort of ends that this NGO is concerned with? Your examples are human rights NGOs, but of course, I mean, there's nothing in what you said, at least, that suggested that there was anything crucial to that point. And one can imagine an NGO that cared about AIDS, say, and one could imagine such an NGO favoring a war that would bring about a reduction in AIDS cases, but at the cost of, you know, vast loss of human lives. And that would seem crazy. That's a really good point. What was your name? I think Justin Roberts. Yeah, I haven't considered this, actually, because a lot of the times the specific NGOs I'm looking at don't have quite so narrow a focus as an AIDS NGO, but you're quite right. That's just an entire possibility. I think, in fact, it might be said that there can be limit cases for how much you are able to act in an institutional capacity. So just as defense attorneys have a limited permission to act in the best interest of their client, they also are officers of the court who have obligations towards larger institutions. It might be the case that if I know I can defend those people, those forms of abuse that I want to stop, but I will only be able to do so at the cost of causing great damage somewhere else, I have to simultaneously exist as agent and as moral person. I have to exist as the representative from these people's voices when they can't speak, but I also have to exist as a moral human being. And that's a very hard line to draw, and I don't know if I have a way of actually delineating how we make those two compatible right now. We seem to have a lot of experience trying simultaneously to inhabit roles and to keep those roles as not excessive permissions to act in unjust ways. We try and do that. So in that sense, at least, we know what we're trying to get at. But as to how we get there specifically, I think you're right. That's a very difficult problem. So I guess the question is, given that I now recognize that a person who cares about AIDS, I have reason to favor this war, but that a moral agent more generally, I have reason to oppose this war. Do you want to be issuing a permission to me qua NGO even? You might say, look, as a person, you can't favor this war. As an NGO, though, you can. Or you might say, no, the only permission I want to give to NGOs is to favor morally desirable but unjust wars. I think, actually, what I said is closer to the latter, but I don't think I want to go quite that way, because that sounds like a conclusion that results from a certain analysis of how we harmonize the various duties we inhabit. 
There can be cases in which, in fact, let's say I have the right to work for a worse world. And I think that's unexceptional. Um, we certainly think that our obligations to children and family members can sometimes take precedence over what would be best globally. These, these rules have serious ethical demands on us. But at the same time, I don't get to engage in nepotism. I don't get to shoot people who are smarter than my son. There are ethical limits on what you can do in the name of those people that you are ethically bound to protect. Now, as to when, in particular, I can work in the interests of those people I'm tied to and know that I'm doing the worst thing for the world full stop, you need a complicated story there, and I don't have one yet. So in fact, I think it's at least not conceptually impossible that an NGO could have a permission to do that, but there's also an obvious point at which that permission will fail. So saying, you know, I care only about the, you know, the rights of animals in Central America, and of course, the action I take in defense of them will blow up South America. Well, no, there are points at which it's obvious that we have crossed a line. Now, how you find the line is a separate issue for me that I have very little ability right now to figure out. And you're right, I need to.
Yeah. I, th I think it, it, it tracks Justin's in the way in that it, it, it asks how strong the role-based permission could be when there's a plurality of effects that any military action will have, some of which will be beneficial and some of which won't. I, I think, well, first off, there's a, the emphasis in your question upon the relevance of intention. That was a separate issue, right? In point of fact, I don't think that is relevant for the legitimacy of a war. The argument is more a conditional form. If, in fact, you want to maintain that intention matters, the ways in which it would matter, the ways in which it would have to matter, are ways that don't equally affect first and second order agents, governments, and respondents. So, in fact, I personally have no interest in establishing that there's intention-based constraints on legitimate actions here. I don't think there are any. But as to the second point as to whether, let's say, as a feminist, we can, a feminist NGO can emphasize the rights of women when, in fact, the war itself will have significant negative consequences for other members of society. Part of me thinks this is a case from my perspective here, especially given how few voices, let's say, Iraqi women would otherwise have. They need to have someone making the arguments on their behalf to remind everyone else what it is that's at stake for them in the possibility either of continued Ba'athist reign or the possibility of an intervention. Now, in the course of doing that, I think this goes back to, to your question as to sort of what happens when you know you're going to be the tiebreaker. But I really think that, say, if the National Organization of Women internationalized a bit and started defending the invasion in Iraq because of its likely effects for gender equity, you know, in fact, it's not clear to me that you know, it's a good bet that Iraq's going to be more egalitarian after this than not. Um, but imagine that it, it did make that bet and it was right to do so. I'm not sure that the National Organization of Women has an obligation to care about the interests of every segment of society, that the National Organization set up to defend the interests of women, say, a home and abroad. At a certain point, that adversarial permission fails when it becomes clear that there are serious interests at stake that you're relying on your interest would, uh, would destroy. But the adversarial permission is there. At least within a certain range of possibilities, it's difficult for us to say that the National Organization of Women can't emphasize the rights of women. where I'm being deliberately sneaky, I think, and I'm not sure that that's an ethically justified strategy. I'm not actually imagining, let's say, that the National Organization of Women has to issue a policy paper saying yes or no on the justice of the war. What they can do, let's say, is limit themselves to emphasizing the positive benefits of the war for women, to being a voice in the wider discussion, a thumb on the scale for women, that makes people recognize when they do their own calculations about the war what's at stake for the interests of women, and frankly, to be obsessively interested only in the interests of women. That's what they're set up to do. Now, at a certain point, when it becomes clear that the adversarial, the justification of an adversarial system fails 
serious moral catastrophe cases, then the National Organization of Women should stop acting on behalf of women and start acting in favor of the more basic category of humanity. But it's very unclear to me how often this adversarial permission will fail. I don't think it fails right now in many of the cases we're talking about. Well, I think this is actually getting to the core of what I'm talking about, which is, in a sense, the current legal system, the current international legal system, and the current self-description of NGOs makes them so unwilling to affiliate themselves with evil that they end up permitting evil to occur. My own view is that, in fact, a more political notion of the NGO's position, one that actually looks to a role-differentiated system and says, you have an obligation to get your hands dirty. To not regard yourself as a moral philosopher above the fray, but to get in the fray when it's possible that that decision actually defends the rights and interests of those people your charter claimed you care about. Sorry, what's your name? Okay, thanks. Um, well, here, here's, here, here's my response to it. I think there's a couple of possibilities implicit in what you said. The idea that the NGO represents a pattern of discourse that is otherwise absent from the wider public discourse, I think that's probably the right place to begin. But we're not a debating society. The point is to actually have effects on human lives. And in particular, NGOs believe that what they say has effects. 
Now, there are two things they might do. They might maintain themselves both as representatives of and as avatars of moral purity. Say, our job is to stay above the fray, never involve ourselves by potentially getting tarred with the brush of evil, and to simply embody in the public discourse the point of view of morally best principles. And in fact, I think a lot of time that's what many of them do. And my own point of view on that is that we can't allow this perspective to be the only unquestioned perspective when, in fact, it's not clear to me that this is what leads to the most concrete benefits for human beings. If, in fact, it's the case that changing your point of view from I embody the principles of justice and fairness to I'm here to argue for people facing injustice, then under those circumstances, I think you may have a more effective method of, pretending, of protecting fundamental human entitlements. And if that's right, then I'm not sure that we don't have an obligation to move away from the I represent a perspective to the I represent those humans. I'm sorry, are you sure? Sorry.